Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Thank you, Andrew, for reading the scriptures for us this morning. Uh, Here at City on a Hill, we have a really high view of the Bible. We believe it's authoritative. We believe it's inerrant. It's God's word for us. And so we submit ourselves to God's word in everything that we do as a church. So thank you again for reading that. Um, At City on a Hill, we have three values. Our values are gospel, community, and mission. The gospel is the good news that we enter God's kingdom by God's cross, through God's grace. And and so we believe that this is the good news of what Jesus has done for us. Uh, community is that we believe God created us for relationships. And so um, we, we're actually, uh, we believe that we should organize around community groups. Community groups are groups of people who get together to study God's word, um, to, to share life together and to love and serve their neighbors. And so you can get signed up for a community group by filling out one of those connect cards. Um, and then um, one of our uh, final announcements, our, our final uh, value is mission. Uh, mission is the good news that the, the, we can't keep the good news to ourselves. We want to tell other people about it in the way that we live our lives and by sharing the hope of Christ and how people can find life in him. Uh, a few announcements this morning. Uh, um, the, the big announcement is next Sunday, we're going to be gathering together in person. Uh, really excited about that. We were able to do that three weeks ago um, for our very first weekly service. And uh, this next Sunday, we're going to be able to do the exact same thing. So uh, if you look on the screen, you'll see a QR code where you can go to register. We do ask that you pre-register. Um, that is a way that we can make sure we can, uh, can safely distance everyone and make sure that it's a, it's a good experience for everybody. Um, this morning, we're continuing our our sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus's vision for the good life. Jesus is saying the words that he's given, giving us lead us to life. And so the understanding, the key to this understanding the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is introducing a kingdom, that this new life, this flourishing life is a kingdom life. Um, and that the, that the kingdom of God is what is in our view. We need to keep our, our eyes focused on the kingdom of God. Jesus came to establish this new kingdom and this new kingdom means that a new way of living is being introduced. And as we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, this new life, this new kingdom life is a lot different than we'd expect. Who gets into this kingdom is different. Um, uh, what what the life is, uh, what the flourishing life looks like is different. Everything is kind of upside down. Jesus says that, you know, the, the least shall be the greatest. And that if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you're going to be a servant. Um, and so this seems really different than we'd expect, but also it goes deeper. Jesus Jesus says that he's interested in what's going on in our hearts. Jesus is always going after our hearts. And so Jesus, by bringing a kingdom, is saying that kingdom life is going to change you. That these, this new relationship to Jesus changes you. And like any relationship, it changes you over time. Um, sociologists say that you are most deeply impacted and affected by your most, your five closest friendships. And so people have said that you are actually the accumulation of those five people. Um, they impact you the most. The Bible says how, how relationships uh, form and shape us in Proverbs 13, verse 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. 
Different friends bring out different parts of your personality. Um, relationships form and shape us. Relationships can be healing. They can be redeeming. Um, and so relationships always change you. And it's and especially a covenant relationship like Jesus is saying involves his kingdom. Last week, Jesus talked about the idea of the kingdom changing us by, by looking at the law. Because when, when you enter this kingdom, there's, there's a new law. And Jesus is saying that he didn't come to abolish the old law, but to kind of reframe it in a way and to drive it deeper into our hearts. And by doing so, he's saying you actually need a new heart to live out this life. Jesus fulfilled the law, all that God required to connect to God. Uh, and in doing so, he gave us a new heart and presses that, that law deeply inside of us. And as verse 20 at the end of what we looked at last week said, you need a righteousness greater that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. You need this deeper heart righteousness. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to unpack what it looks like to have this greater righteousness, this greater wholehearted devotion to God in, in six different areas, six different topics about how we actually work, practically work this out. And so Jesus here in Matthew 5, verse 21, starts with anger and murder. Why would Jesus start with the topic of murder? Because universally, we could probably all agree that murder is wrong. The, it, taking the, someone, an innocent life is wrong. To kill an innocent person is wrong. In fact, we know it's so wrong that when we do something wrong, we say, it's not like I killed somebody. Like we know that murder is wrong. The unjust killing of an innocent person. Jesus even gets at this. He says in verse 21, you've heard that it was said to those of old. You've heard it said, this is a common saying. Jesus is referring to the sixth commandment in the Ten Commandments. This is, this is common knowledge. Everybody agrees that murder deserves punishment. At the end of verse 21, and he, says, he says, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So Jesus sets the baseline. I think we could all agree that taking an innocent life is wrong. But in verse 22, Jesus says, but I say to you, now that should stop us in our tracks. Jesus says, you've heard this said, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. That would have stopped Jesus' hearers in their tracks. Jesus isn't doing away with the law. He's reframing it. He's pushing it deeper. And Jesus wants us to see why anger is such a big deal. Why is anger such a big deal. Well, first of all, nobody likes an angry person. No one likes angry people. If you walk into a room, you walk into the office, you come home and someone's angry, you're going to do whatever you can to avoid that person, right? You're going to get away from them. You're going to avoid them. Maybe you're confrontational and your heart rate starts to rise and you feel like you're about to have to get yourself ready for a fight. So we don't like angry people. We see angry people and we, we, we tend to go, I'm going to stay away from them. That's an angry person. But rarely do we judge ourselves with the same scrutiny. When we get angry, we excuse it. We say, well, you know, I've just had a bad day. I'm in a bad mood. I, I, I got stuck in traffic. I was late to work. It's your fault that I'm angry. We shift the blame. We don't often see that our own anger is a big deal, just the anger of everybody else. 
So you might be thinking, well, well, I can never be angry. I mean, like, is Jesus saying I can never get angry at things? Of course not. You can get angry. The Bible says be angry and don't sin. So in other, so in other words, there is, there's a type of anger that seems to be okay. And there's a type of anger that seems to lead to sin. The Bible talks about a righteous type of anger. There, there are certain things you should get upset about. What You should get upset about injustices. You should get upset if, if the president doesn't decry white supremacy. You, you should get upset if you see a child get harmed or an innocent person get defrauded. Those are things that should make you get upset. But the problem is that even our righteous anger often tips over into unrighteous anger. Because anger, and when anger becomes a problem, is it's about the direction that we send our anger. David was angry in the Psalms oftentimes, but he didn't, you know, like a fire hose, blow anger all over everybody else. He actually took his anger to the Lord. He took his anger to God. He would go to God with his anger and express the frustrations of his soul. And like a small child who runs to their parent and their parent holds them tight while they squirm and they fight until they finally calm down and realize that they're safe, God tells us to take our anger to him. That's what you do with righteous anger. But what happens is that we often take our anger and we turn it towards other people. And that's when it becomes a problem. It becomes a fixation. It becomes a fixed desire of our hearts where we have ill intent toward another person. It can easily give to bitterness. Eric Mason says that bitterness is anger and unforgiveness that has sat too long and is spoiling your life and those around you. Its tentacles burrow into every area of life. Anger has the idea of, of the, the idea of the word here is to fill with poison. And so what happens is that the anger starts as an, an inner feeling in our soul. And verse 22 says that what comes out of our soul goes into the words that we say. Jesus says this in Mark chapter seven, that it's not what goes into us or, or maybe the circumstances around you that defile you, but it's what comes out of the human heart. So the words we say and the way that we react and how we get angry is a reaction to something going on in our souls that our souls are bent towards something sinful. In verse 22, we see a couple ways this happens. It says that, that if you insult your brother or you say to your brother, you fool, you'll be liable to the same judgment. See, here's what being angry is really saying. It's saying that something or someone else is doing or has done something that is ruining your day, that has ruined your year, maybe even ruined your life. And what it's saying is that you are my problem. That is my problem. I feel out of control. I feel like I deserve better than this. And what we do with our anger is we, we excuse it away. We say, I had to yell because you don't listen to me. I became angry because you should treat me better. 
We often think that anger is the superpower that's going to get us what we want. Um, this is 1990s movie month here at City on a Hill. Let me give you another example. I talked about The Sixth Sense last, last week. Uh, today, I'm going to talk about this old movie called Mystery Men. Uh, Mystery Men was this superhero movie in, in 1999. It, it actually lost $30 million, but became this cult classic uh, on VHS. And Mystery Men was about these superheroes with suspect powers. Okay, One guy was really good at really accurate at throwing cutlery, but it was like spoons and sporks and forks, but never knives. Uh, There was another guy who could turn invisible if nobody was looking at him. And then you had a character that Ben Stiller played called Mr. Furious. And Mr. Furious, his superpower was that he could get really angry and rage at things. We often act like Mr. Furious, believing that if we just get mad enough, we can will things into being. We can make things turn out the way that we want, that we can get to the good life that Jesus is talking about. But the problem is, is that the book of James says that you should be slow to anger because for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But to say that being angry in our hearts or in our words is equal to murder seems kind of extreme, right? Not to Jesus. Jesus says three times in three different ways that your anger is a problem and that your anger will lead to the same judgment that would be due someone who took a physical life. The, the penalty for death at this time or for murder at this time was death. It was, it was the death penalty. Jesus is saying here that you will be eternally separated from God if you have a, a heart consumed with anger. And the problem is, is whether you've committed murder or you've committed murder in your heart, it's still the same because anger is the seed that births itself into murder. And the best way to describe this is the the example of an acorn and and a tree. And and, and an acorn is not not a full-born tree, but inside that acorn seed, you have everything you need to grow into a tree. So all that acorn has to do is hit the right dirt under the right conditions, and it will grow into what it is intended to grow into. Your anger, if given time and opportunity and God removing his, the hand of his grace from you, would lead itself into murder. In other words, you have the capacity in your soul to do this. If you have an angry heart, you have the capacity to do this. The only difference between a mass murderer and me is the circumstances and God's grace. And another part that, that, G, that really drives this idea home is that the sixth commandment to not murder was never about just not taking physical life. See, hidden behind each of the 10 commandments of, of the negative ones, like do not steal or do not murder, is also a positive as well. So not only don't murder, but you should value life. You should value life expressed in the way that you love and treat other people. So I want you to replay your day, replay your week. Have you spoken unkindly to anyone? Have you spoken unsympathetically or uncharitably? Have you judged anyone? Have you turned a blind eye to someone in need? Jesus is saying, by your failure to love that person, you've committed murder in your heart. 
See, secondly, we need to see how anger affects your view of others. How anger affects your view of others. See, Jesus addresses anger in three different ways here. We've kind of unpacked the first one, the idea of being angry. This is more of an internal feeling, something swelling up inside of us. Um, and, then, and just because you don't do it doesn't mean it's not sinful. I saw a meme actually today um, that said that, you know, it said that um, uh, I may look calm on the outside, but I've punched you in the face three times already in my mind. Like we tend to think if we don't do it, then it's not sinful. But that type of attitude is just shot through with ego and pride and disdain and offense. But there's two other ways that this is manifested from our hearts. The first is it says that um, is it says that we insult our brother. So whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. That word insult a really really intriguing word. It's the word raka. In fact, it's it's kind of tough to pin down what that word even means. Um, some Bible translations have just transliterated, which means they just took the 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 um, the word they took the Greek word and just kind of uh, made it. Like they just kind of said, or the Hebrew word. And they said, we're just going to use that word because we can't really pin down what it means. But the best sense of that word is you nothing. It's insulting somebody saying, you're nothing. It's dehumanizing someone. To consider someone nothing, to consider someone less than human in the way that you treated them. Listen, Jesus got angry. And sometimes we use that excuse all the time to get angry. We said, look, Jesus, got, he flipped over tables and he got angry and this and that. Here's the problem. You're not Jesus, number one. Number two, Jesus never belittled anyone. Jesus may have gotten angry over the righteousness and, and, and the glory that God was being deprived of, but he never belittled anyone. And you might be saying, look, I don't do that. I, I don't dehumanize people. I don't belittle people. Yet, sure you do. Have you ever shown indifference toward another person's suffering? Have you ever categorized people in your mind and thought, well, all of this certain type of people are like that? Do you give yourself into cancel culture? Where somebody makes one mistake, you just cut them off and they are no longer valuable or even human or worth dignifying. What about that one certain person who just can't seem to get it together and you've become callous towards that person, callous in the way that you've treated them? Is there a certain person or type of people you don't treat with dignity or that you're indifferent to? Similarly is, is the phrase, you fool. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. This is the idea of calling someone an idiot or a moron. The words moros actually in, in, um, in, in, in the original language, like where we get the word moron from. So maybe you've said, you know, I'm a pretty good person. Uh, I treat others equitably all the time. I don't dehumanize anybody. Let's do a little thought experiment. You're driving down Arbor Way. I will pray for you as you do that. And somebody pulls out in front of you, gives you the middle finger, swerves through traffic without a turn signal. What words come to mind? Oh, you blessed soul. No, you idiot. You moron. Learn how to drive. 
And so whether it's that type of name calling, this form of anger that says you should, you actually should think this about yourself because I think you're an idiot or I think you're a moron. You can do that very Bostonian outward type, or you can kind of do like the Downton Abbey version of shade. If you ever watched Downton Abbey, let me just sum up the show for you. It's just British people standing around looking concerned about things. That's the entire show. They will throw shade at each other in the most polite upper class way possible. So whether you do that, either way that you do that, you are belittling and dehumanizing someone. But, but why the judgment? Why would Jesus say that the words you say to another person or the heart posture or attitude you have towards someone, why would he say it deserves the same judgment as physical murder? Because these are all ways to, that we fail to love ones created in the image of God. It's, it's no accident that Jesus uses the word brother here twice. In other words, brother, man, your your fellow human. So a lack of love is equal to murder. <clears throat> and what anger will cause us to do is it will cause us to demonize others because we dehumanize them and we think of them as less than we think of ourselves. And this is really easy to do right now. Listen, we are prepping for the election season. I, I think about as a pastor, I think this is one of most, the most important times for me to shepherd people uh, in, in this moment because we are in the most politically engaged yet most divided times in my lifetime. And the easy thing to do is to, is to demonize people who don't fit our political agenda, paint with broad strokes, to say, if you vote this way, then you're evil, you nothing, you fool, you idiots, making accusations, questioning motives. But yet Jesus says, love your enemies. See, when we give our anger over to Jesus, it frees us to love those we disagree with. It, it frees us to have healthy debate and hard conversations that don't dehumanize others. So you might be thinking at this point, it sounds like we're all guilty. You're getting it. We're all guilty of this. Remember, as I talked about last week, the law is like a mirror. We look into it and we see the height of God's standard and we say, I, I can't do this, but Jesus has done this on my behalf. So lastly, we need to see what Jesus says to do with, with our anger. There's two things. We need to repent and we need to be reconciled. We need to repent and be reconciled. Verse 24, and this is fascinating. Jesus says, if, if you're sitting there, verses 23 and 24, you're, you're offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. So imagine the scene. In this time, people would take an animal sacrifice, they would go to the temple, they would uh, make a sacrifice for their sins. So here's this guy, he brings in Bessie the cow and leaves it standing in front of the altar to go reconcile to his brother, to his friend to the person that he had hurt or offended. Go, be reconciled. Don't wait. Go make it right. But I want you to notice what he was doing first. He was worshiping. It's, it's interesting. Sometimes we miss this in this passage. He was first worshiping and then he was convicted. See, there's no greater antidote to anger than Jesus. 
See, the antidote to anger is not don't get angry. It's look to Jesus. It's look to the gospel. Take it to God. Because what you find when you look at the gospel and you remember what Jesus has done for you, you can't stay angry very long. You see that Jesus forgave you of your sins. He forgave you of the offenses that you've committed against God, which would anger God. Jesus forgave you of those things. And as you stare at the beauty and the glory of the gospel, you can't stay angry. So we design our liturgy very intentionally. And by the way, liturgy is just a fancy word for the flow and the order of our services. And so each week we're called to worship uh, which means we come, we slow down, we rest, we, we trust that God's working on our behalf as we, we come before him. We, we worship God and his greatness. Uh, we, we worship him. And then we look, to, look at our sin. We, either, we have some sort of confession, whether it's confessing um, our, our sin corporately or privately or some fact about the gospel. And then we look to Jesus. It, it causes us to stop and it causes us to consider what's out of order in my life. What's out of order? Is it my thoughts? Is it habitual sin? Is it interpersonal issues? And then we, we look to Jesus and at the end of the service, it always ends up kind of leading to like, what is God calling me to do? How is he calling me to live faithfully? See, this is how the kingdom of God changes us because we come open-hearted and open-handed to God saying, Change me, shape me, I'm yours. And there are going to be times that if the gospel is penetrating, you're going to be convicted. And you need to take that step and you need to, to make it happen. Sometimes it might actually be in the middle of a worship service. You remember a way that you've offended or you've hurt somebody else in our congregation and you need to set some time up to talk with them and to repent and be reconciled. But here's why we need to do this. Because though it, we need to begin with worship and we need to look to Jesus, once we're convicted of our sin, it begins to affect our worship. It begins to affect our worship. And this kind of echoes the Old Testament passages about worshiping God with a heart that was far from him. Amos chapter five, which we sang about this tonight or this, this morning. I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. God's not saying don't worship. He's saying there's something out of whack in your life. There's something disordered in the way that you're treating other people. Repent, be reconciled, and turn to God. Jesus wants your heart, but a heart consumed with anger or hate towards another person is far from him. But it's not just affecting you. Jesus here says, go and find the person you've offended. The implication there is that you've somehow affected that person's relationship with God. The implication is that they're not there with you worshiping. Go find them, be reconciled. The end of this passage gives us hope too, because in verses 25 and 26, the situation's pretty dire. 
The person is going to court. They're going to take the accusations uh, of your accusations toward them and calling them a fool and insulting them. They're taking it to the court. They're taking your offense to the court. It's saying it's not too late. All is not lost. Even the most dire situation can be restored. Be reconciled. But what does it look like to reconcile with another person? First, it begins with repenting. This is, this is what I've done. This is, this is what I've done wrong. I'm admitting what I've done wrong. I'm confessing it. I'm going to ask your forgiveness. Please forgive me for how I've hurt you. Not saying if I hurt you, I'm sorry, but real for asking for forgiveness. I'm sorry for how I've hurt you. And then asking, how can I change so that we can walk faithfully together? So what does this mean for City on a Hill Forest Hills? Listen, we're going to have relational strife. We're going to get angry with each other. Look, we're in this sweet honeymoon phase right now. Everybody kind of loves each other. Everything's great. Eventually, we're going to hit a place where you're going to go, wait a minute. Those people aren't perfect. And guess what they're saying about you? That person's not perfect. See, proximity and our preferences and differences and viewpoints and, and the fact that we're all sinners is a recipe for struggle and strife and getting angry with each other. Attempting to be a multicultural church, we are going to miss each other culturally sometimes. And what can happen is we start to notice, and this is how anger stews in us, is we notice a cooling in our affection for each other. You notice a distance between you and somebody else. An irritation begins to come up in your soul. There's an awkwardness in interactions. You, you begin to avoid other people or negative feelings or a negative interaction even happens. And here's what our city is training us to do. You're either only here for a little while, so it's like, you know what? Just You're going to be gone in, in a couple of years. Don't worry about it. Just, you know, you just, it's not worth your time to try to fix that. Or maybe you, you live here, you grew up here, and you're like, you know what? It's a big city. I can just avoid this person. I don't, I don't need that type of negativity in my life. I don't need toxic relationships in my life. I don't need toxic people. But what if the church was different? What if we said, we're going to look to Jesus together when we get angry? And we, we committed to valuing every person's life not calling others you nothing, or not name-calling or accusing, but realizing that when we sin, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. And then we take it to the Lord and we reconcile. And whether it's a, it's a Matthew 5 issue where I'm at fault or it's a Matthew 18 issue where you're at fault, we say, you know what? I'm gonna go to you first and I'm gonna reconcile this because that's what Jesus did for us. It's what Jesus did for us, Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did not give us the anger that our sin deserved, but at the cross, Jesus was spit on. He was mocked. He was murdered, and he didn't become angry. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. In verse 25, the word, the phrase come to terms uh, literally means make friends. 
through the cross, Jesus made friends with you. He said that the wrath that God has towards us, towards our sin has been extinguished and you've been invited into this life-giving relationship. And we want our church to embody that friendship. That's part of the culture we want to build, a friendship where we grow together to love Jesus more and more over time. So what causes anger in you? What, what stokes anger? Is it pride? Is it jealousy? Is it feeling overlooked? Who are the people that you fail to love? Maybe it's, maybe it's just one person. Maybe it's, maybe it's a group of people. Let's look to Jesus together, taking the anger of our hearts, turning it toward God and asking him to shape us to live the flourishing life that he's called us to live. Let's pray. God, we praise you and we pray and thank you for your goodness. We pray that um, we would be a church that embodies the gospel when we sin against one another, that we, we don't cancel each other, that we don't devalue each other, that we don't overlook real offenses that we commit, um, that, Lord, that we, have a, we really understand what is going on in our souls, and that is that we need you. We desperately need you. So God, as we look to you together, as we, as we long to be that city on a hill, this beaming example of what the good life looks like, God, let people not see us, let, they not, let them not see good morals, let them see needy people looking to Jesus together. And so God, we pray as we continue in the service that you would be glorified, that you would warm our hearts towards you and towards each other. And we pray this in your name, amen. Amen.